Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, sermons and lectures by Kevin Morris, and episode number 79 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by my generous supporters over at patreon.com. If you would so like to support this show and things that I'm doing here, you can head on over to patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash better Bible reading. And there you can pick from several support tiers. When you show your support, you'll gain access to exclusive content as my way of saying thank you. Well, let's get this started. We are continuing our study of the gospel according to the Old Testament. And we have gotten off to a pretty good start because we've looked at the way that the Bible introduces to us the framework for reading the Old Testament, the anticipation of Jesus coming into the world. And that was Genesis 3.15. And we talked about how in the midst of one of the most uh, devastating chapters in the whole Bible, we have there one of the most glorious promises as a beautiful uh, glimmer of hope that gets brighter and brighter as we progress through the Old Testament scriptures all the way to the coming of Christ in the beginning of the New Testament. And then last time on this uh, segment, we took a look at how Jesus is the greater Adam. We compared and contrasted the way that both of them were tempted, the way that humanity finds themselves in either Adam or Christ. We took a look at Romans 5 to see that analysis from the Apostle Paul. And now we're going to continue our study of the way that Jesus is in anticipation, in prophecy, and thematically, if we look at the different themes of the Old Testament, uh, that Jesus fulfills those as well. And so today we're looking at how Jesus is a greater prophet. You know, as a Presbyterian, I'm a fan of the Westminster Confession of Faith because, well, for multiple reasons, but one of those is because it really highlights how Jesus in his earthly ministry and in his heavenly ministry, is fulfilling three particular offices, those three offices that we see all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, one of those being the office of prophet. And that might be a strange place to really situate Jesus for many of us, because when we think about the fact that Jesus is prophet, most of the time we actually hear that in a negative sense. What I mean by that is those who would deny his divinity, those who would deny that he is God, those who would flat out reject the doctrine of the Trinity, would, for some reason, be willing to grant that Jesus was a great prophet. You'll hear this often in uh, Mormon circles or even Jehovah's Witnesses, even in Islam, that Jesus is recognized as a great prophet. Now, of course, the problem with that is actually dealing with the claims that he makes. And we would certainly not want to um, let these people off the hook because when they're saying that Jesus is a great prophet, they're saying that in contrast to what we actually see recorded in our Bibles of the things that Jesus says. So the, they, would, they would say this is, well, our... our interpretation or our translation is wrong. That would be the case that you'd see in Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism. Or in the case of Islam, 
that our Bible is corrupted and unreliable as a whole. So the Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus of history. The Jesus of history is actually going to come back and correct all of us Christians who got it wrong. But if we actually grant that Jesus is the one in the scriptures, the one that we hear spoken of, the one that we hear described, and also the claims that he makes, it becomes very clear that we can refer to him as a prophet in the most positive sense and do so without degrading his divinity. In other words, Jesus can certainly be a greater prophet while still being God, and that was the case we looked at the fact that he is the greater Adam. That is to say, he was certainly man, but that in no way takes away the fact that he was fully divine and is fully divine for that matter. So, we think about prophets, right? You, you almost certainly go to Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. I name those three because those are the largest Old Testament prophetic books. Or you might think of Malachi or Daniel or Jonah, right? That's normally where our minds go to when we think about the office of prophet in the Old Testament. But it may surprise you when you rewind a little bit more in the framework of the Old Testament, let's look at the first five books, almost certainly without regard as prophetic books, right? We, we normally don't think of the idea of prophet in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But if we just took those five, we didn't even get any further than the first five books of the Bible, it might fascinate you that of all the people introduced to us in the first five books of the Bible, no one stands out as a more central figure than that of Moses. Now, you might be saying, well, no, Kevin, that's not surprising. That is pretty typical that people would recognize Moses as the most central figure of the first five books of the Bible. In fact, historically, Moses being the writer of the first five books of the Bible. But it might surprise you, of all the titles given to Moses, of all the ways that we could describe him, or the way the Bible describes him, he is described first and foremost as prophet. Now, let me read this for you in Deuteronomy 34, the very end of the last book in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we have this kind of eulogy, in some ways, of Moses. Moses is about to die. Joshua is about to take over as leader of God's people and bring them all the way into the promised land. And here's what it says concerning Moses. This is the very end of Deuteronomy 34, verse number 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So, Scriptures want to make clear to us here that 
Moses is the chief of all prophets. Moses is the standard of prophets. We could put it that way. There's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. So Moses is the supreme prophet of old. But that certainly doesn't go without saying that he had his faults. He wasn't perfect after all. One of the most uh, memorable instances of this was in Numbers chapter 20, verses 10 through 13, when Moses strikes the rock. And he does so, we're told, in disregard to God. Let me read that to you, Numbers 20, 10 through 13. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So Moses, certainly a key figure, a chief prophet, the standard of prophet, and yet we have here his sin, his disregard for upholding God as holy, doing this outside of the will of God, and we read there that God says, because of this, you're not going to go into the promised land. So Moses, a glorious key figure as prophet, but not perfect. In fact, it was the very fact that he wasn't perfect that God said, you will not enter in alive to the promised land, but you will die because of this particular sin. So he was faithful, but he was not in any regard perfect. Now, this is where there's this level of angst, right? You see these offices in the Old Testament, sometimes faithful people, sometimes not very faithful people, sometimes outright despicable people. And in all of them, we have this angst for something greater. We have this angst for someone who's going to do a much better job. And even in the, in the case of those who do pretty well, they die. Because, just like Adam, they had sin, and therefore they died. We read about that in Romans 5 last time we were together. In this series, we talked about how those who are in Adam die just like Adam. And so as long as we don't get to the perfection, the perfect embodiment of all of these things, we're always going to have some level of expectation that dwindles and that finds itself very displeased and let down. True of ourselves, true of our examples in the Bible. But Moses was a great example, but not perfect. Now here's what he says to the Israelites. Moses certainly knows that he is not perfect. And he knows that as, 
as true as it is that God has raised him up and used him for the people, that he is not the end-all, be-all. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, Moses says this to the Israelites, starting in verse number 15. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die." This is a glorious passage for several reasons. When we think about what Moses is saying here, Moses says that this office of prophet is not going to terminate with me. But he also doesn't say this office of prophet is going to continue and continue and continue. Instead, what Moses does here is he points, those of us who are reading, and his immediate audience, to a particular fulfillment of his office. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. You shall listen to him. Now the question is, what do we do with this? What do we make of this? Well, of course you understand what we're getting to. This is not some kind of plot twist or some kind of surprise ending. We're getting to Christ. Christ is the one who is prophesied of here, and we don't even have to speculate about this, okay? This isn't one of those instances where we're not really sure whether or not Moses is talking about Jesus or what exactly the whole idea is here. We can actually go to the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, we see this explicitly mentioned. And where do we see this mentioned? We see it mentioned in Peter as he is preaching at Solomon's portico. He says this in Acts chapter 3. Let me just pick it up here. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll pick it up in verse number 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer he thus fulfilled. Now, notice there that what Peter is saying is that the prophets collectively, their collective message, their collective prophecy is that his Christ would suffer. That is to say, if we looked at the Old Testament office of prophet, the grand theme is the coming of this Christ. That is the anticipation 
in the office of prophet. Pick it up at verse number 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Notice there. What Peter also says is it's not only that the office of prophet was anticipating Jesus' earthly ministry, that is his first coming, but also his second coming, what he calls here the time for restoring all the things. That is saying heaven must receive, so Jesus ascending into heaven, heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So the prophetic ministry in the Old Testament is, serves as a bookend. The, the subject matter of every book, every Old Testament prophetic book, serves as a bookend of Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of it all. The, the first end of the book, if you, if you will, is anticipating his first coming. The second end of the book is anticipating his second coming, where all things will be restored. And Jesus is the centerpiece of all of that. That is how we can understand Jesus, in one sense, of fulfilling the office of prophet. And that is because he is the subject matter, ultimately and chiefly. But now, note this. Verse number 22. Moses said... And then what does he do here? He quotes Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 19. He quotes what we, what we read just a little while ago when Moses predicted that one was going to come. And Peter quotes it here, verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, what he just did, was he said very plainly and very clearly that Jesus is the one who Moses spoke of. Jesus is the prophet who is to come. Now that's really significant how he orients that whole thing because he starts by saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the subject matter and then he says in verse 22, Jesus is the fulfillment of the office itself. So it's not just that Jesus is the idea behind prophecies, but it's that he is the prophet. And that's a really fascinating way to think about Jesus because normally we just think about the fact that he is the substitute, or we think about the fact that he is the one who died to forgive us of our sins. But what's happening here is we're really putting a lot of emphasis on his earthly ministry, putting a lot of emphasis on what he fulfills actively in his obedience, his function. Okay, so it's really significant to think about Jesus this way because it doesn't take away from his actual death on the cross, but it also doesn't make us have an unbalanced 
focus on the cross, forgetting about everything else. It, it's layers and layers of compliment in Jesus' ministry. So, do we actually see this play out? Is 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 Peter just giving us this unique perspective on Jesus as fulfilling the office of prophet, or is this actually something that's been a recurring idea in his ministry? Well, it may surprise you that one of the Gospels in particular really plays into this idea. The Gospel of John, again and again, now, by the way, if you think about Jesus as prophet, then going into the Gospel of John, it becomes clear, it becomes actually inescapable to think about him in, in this way. But most of the time when we come to the Gospel of John, we focus on Jesus as king. We think about his, his authority because Jesus is saying, I am, right? He's, he has his seven I am sayings. He has so much in terms of his divine nature uh, kind of amplified in the Gospel of John. So normally we just think, well, the focus must be on the fact that he reigns with all authority, so we think about him as king. But I want you to think about how John introduces Jesus here. Very beginning, the Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, John wants us, before we get any further, now, of course, this is talking about Jesus' divine nature. This is talking about his role. It, it correlates him to Genesis 1. If you read John 1 and Genesis 1, you'll see that there is a very uh, purposeful way that John arranges his introduction here uh, to kind of tell us the one I'm talking about is the very same one that you see in Genesis 1, creating the heavens and the earth. And that's one way to think about him as the word, but it's also the fact that the prophet spoke the words of God on God's behalf. You think about how Moses functioned in the Exodus. God told him what to say to Pharaoh. He went and he said it to Pharaoh. Moses was the mouthpiece of God. He was the prophet. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is, but that's because Jesus is not only a prophet, he's the prophet. And he's not only the prophet, but he is the very word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But then it's interesting, as you work your way through John's gospel several times, this idea of prophet comes up. Moses gives that promise. In fact, it's a prophecy, isn't it? Moses gives a prophecy that one's going to come to be a prophet. Deuteronomy 18 is a prophecy. But when we get to John's gospel, it's as if all of the Israelites were living from the time of Moses' death to the time of Christ, waiting to see if this prophecy was in fact going to be fulfilled in their lifetime. Here's what is said about Jesus, verse number 19 of John 1. And this is the testimony of John, that is John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, 
who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then they said this, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. And then they said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? Right, so they come to John the Baptist. They're impressed with his earthly ministry. They're wondering, is this just a, a godly man who's been raised up, or is this actually a fulfillment? Now, what you'll notice here is it seems like they had this compartmentalization of these anticipations. That is to say, they thought maybe one was going to be the Messiah, the king. Another is going to be the prophet. Now, as we move on in this, we'll make note of the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. So it seems like they had kind of a, a bad starting point. It was as if they, they thought um, there was going to be a separate person for each of these fulfillments. But note that they still were waiting on this personal fulfillment of the prophet. The prophet who is to come is, is the way that it's written later. Now, this is verse 24. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So that's the way that John is introduced. So now we get to Jesus himself in John 1, verse number 43. This is when Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael. And here's what it says. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So it's interesting that these men were waiting to see who was the one that was going to come of whom Moses wrote of, Moses in the law, and also the prophets wrote. So you have Jesus as the one coming into frame, clearer and clearer. And that continues in John's gospel. It continues in John 6, 14. This is the very end of uh, one of those miracles that occurs in all four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when Jesus feeds the 5,000. So in John's gospel, he feeds the 5,000, and what happens right after that says, verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus does this miracle and it seems in, in a lot of ways, they had the right idea. They didn't have the right idea of how it was going to be fulfilled ultimately. That is to say, they, they kind of viewed Jesus in purely earthly uh, categories. But no doubt they saw this correlation between Moses with the Israelites in the wilderness, manna from heaven, and the one here who feeds them with bread. And Jesus picks up on this theme. He goes on to say in the rest of the chapter how he is 
the greater Moses in, in this very regard. But it is interesting to note that they saw this office of prophet being fulfilled in him. And then finally, in chapter 7. Chapter 7, Jesus has finished several more teachings and illustrations and miracles and what's happening now is there's a lot of chatter. There's a lot of confusion and the Pharisees not really being sure what to make of all this. The crowd themselves not sure what to make of this. So you have the Pharisees getting ready to try to arrest Jesus, trying to figure out what that's going to look like. And then in verse 40, we, we see that there's some division among the people trying to figure out what to make of all this. And it says, when they heard these words, actually, let me, let me back up and pick it up in verse number 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Then they continue on with their speculation. But again, note, there was this grand fulfillment of the prophet who is to come that the crowd was anticipating, that God's people were looking forward to. Ever since Moses uttered the prophecy that one was going to come in much greater measure, much more grand fulfillment than him. And it was this one whom God's people were to listen to. Well, that's who Jesus is. When we look at the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus, the Gospel of John provides the most clear overlap between the two. And it's the same kind of overlap that you see when we looked at Jesus and Adam. Jesus fulfills in every way that Adam fails. And Jesus fulfills in every way that Moses fails. Note that when we consider Moses' error, his sin, what he did to disqualify himself from entering into the promised land is, is what? He struck the rock inappropriately and the rock that possessed water. Now, it's so interesting here to think about Jesus as the greater Moses. Of course, you can look at the feeding of the 5,000 and what he said afterwards about the bread from heaven. You can also look at the fact that in Luke, when Jesus is up on the mountain, he's transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John. It says in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus was speaking about his exodus, which he was about to fulfill. So you have in Jesus a greater exodus that fulfills in much greater measure than that that was seen in the life of Moses as they crossed the Red Sea out of Egypt towards the Promised Land. But what's so fascinating to me is what we just read about Jesus. Now, Moses struck the rock to give the people water. He did so. 
contrary to upholding God as holy. But Jesus says this of himself, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, what happens to Jesus the very end of his life on earth before he dies? Or another way to put it, probably a more accurate way to put it, what exactly is it that happens after Jesus has been crucified? Well, we see it without going any further than John's gospel again. Think about what was just said, okay? What was just said in this notion from Jesus, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Moses attempted to offer the people water, and it didn't lead to living water, it didn't lead to life. It led to his own death. But in contrast to that, what happens to Jesus on the cross? It says in John 19, verse 33, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. Now, the glorious imagery there is that in Jesus' death, his prophecy comes true. In his death outflows the water, and it is not the water like the water that was flowing out of the rock. It wasn't like the water that had no value of life. It wasn't like the water which actually got Moses condemned and banished from entering into the promised land. Instead, it was the kind of water that Jesus spoke of, living water. And John even inserts there in John 7 that Jesus spoke of this living water. It says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So you could really correlate it in this way. The water which led to death in the life of Moses was fulfilled in greater measure by Jesus because he offers water that leads to life. In fact, he offers us the Spirit himself, who is the Spirit of life. Whereas what Adam did led to death, what Jesus did as the greater Adam led to life. What Moses did as a great prophet, but not the greatest prophet, ultimately led to his own death. But Jesus comes as the greater prophet. And what he does leads to life. 
Well, that wraps things up for this episode of Teaching Thursdays and our study in the Gospel according to the Old Testament. I hope you have a greater appreciation for the fact that Jesus is indeed a greater prophet, one who far exceeds all of the anticipations in the Old Testament, and one who takes what Moses did and brings it to its right conclusion, much further than Moses was ever able to go. As Moses was only able to get to the precipice of the promised land, Jesus is able to take his people all the way in and keep them there securely because he is the greater prophet. And he assures us of this because he is also the word of God, the one who speaks on behalf of God, the one who is God. So there's a glorious thing for us to keep in mind when we think about Jesus in the Old Testament consideration of prophet. I hope, if nothing else, this actually gives you a better lens to read something like the Gospel of John, having these things in mind. Well, friends, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your continued support for all of the downloads, the subscriptions, everything uh, that you are doing to help me make this show a reality week after week. And I hope you're blessed by this. Please reach out to me. If you have any questions, have any requests for future episodes, I'd be glad to work those in. And please consider sharing this on iTunes. By leaving a review, you are helping the show climb in the search engine machine uh, that is Apple Podcasts. So as you do that, you will help the show uh, become more findable and searchable for people who are uh, not yet listeners. And so I'd greatly appreciate that. Enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll see you here on another episode real soon.